Welcome to Quest, where we believe a great faith, great church experience, and great life is grounded in authentic relationship with God and living life with friends. Join us today in changing our world one friendship at a time. If you would like more information about connecting at Quest, stay tuned after the message. So we're in a series on Romans where Paul has spent the first five chapters building on the truth of the gospel with an emphasis on justification. So today as we jump into chapter 6, he continues to profoundly lay out how faith in Jesus Christ leads to change in our lives, giving us greater clarity on a process that in theological terms we talk about is sanctification. It's this idea of this working out of God's good in us that helps us become and grow uh, better and more into being who Jesus is on a daily basis. He's going to continue to build on these ideas in chapter 7 and 8 where we'll see Paul talk vulnerably about his struggles with sin. Remember, remember, we use this word sin, but we're not just referring to doing bad things. Sin is seeking anything, whether it's bad or good, more than God. And the Bible says sin is often making good things into ultimate things. And many Christians, I think, live shorthanded when they don't understand what Romans 6 tells us that we're going to look at today. And we see this shorthandedness in our lives when we start thinking things like when when we feel like we aren't saved in life or, or when we sin and we feel like we just fell off the mountain and we're trying to climb and we get so discouraged and hopeless. And what Paul is going to help us see is no matter how far that we fall, we are always held by God's cord of grace. And when when we understand what God has done, it helps us process sin differently and see it differently. It helps us live with more freedom and hope. This whole section revolves around a question that Paul asks twice, once in verse 1 and once in verse 15. A question he knows will be asked because of his radical teaching on the gospel's justification by faith. And it's this, if salvation is by grace, then Why can't we live any way we want? Why do we need to change? And so Paul starts off with this question. He says in verse 1, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? And Paul's answer is by no means, which in the nuance of Greek just simply means no. Absolutely not. Paul is saying if you ask the question, you don't understand the gospel. By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? So this phrase, died to sin, Paul is trying to drill this point into us and into our hearts. And Just just take a quick glance on the screen. Look how many times Paul actually refers to this concept of dying in just this chapter alone. So what does Paul mean by died to sin? Does it mean we've all lost all interest in sin or, or, or that we're slowly moving away from it? No, we know these to be untrue because, well, the word died in whatever language you put it in is the single past once and done thing, right? It's not a process of sin weakening in us. We are dead. It's already done. And second, Christians can still be tempted to sin. We see this in Romans 7. We'll look at that in a couple weeks here when Paul says Christians still have sinful desires. So being dead doesn't mean we've lost all interest in sin. What Paul means is 
explained as we go through this chapter. So let's jump into verse 3. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. So Paul is saying the moment you become a Christian, you are no longer under the reign or the ruling power of sin. This is backed up by what he says in Romans 5.21. We read a little while ago, sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign. In other words, still, sin still has power, but it can no longer force you its demands on you. There's something that when we become a follower of Jesus, there's a greater ability to resist sin. There's a new power at work in your life that can and wants to rule you. The reference to baptism above shows this and how the symbolic act of going under the water reveals how we are buried with Jesus. And then as you come out, showing that his life is now your life. You are in Christ. And because of that, Paul says, we have access to Jesus' resurrection power over sin. Again, it doesn't mean that you, sin has no power or influence over you. However, sin can no longer dictate to you. You may obey sin, but now you no longer have to obey it. Sin can be dead to you. So Paul goes on in verse 5 and says, For if we've been united with him in death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. This word united is a a really fascinating word. It's a a, a horticulture term in Greek, where you take a branch of one tree and you graft them into another. It's a powerful image. When we accept Jesus, the Holy Spirit takes this cut-off, dead branch of your life and grafts it into Christ's living tree. And God's life starts to flow in you. So what Paul is helping us see is the moment you believe in Jesus Christ and say to God, you are Lord of my life, you are connected to him. You are engrafted into him. And Paul is wanting us to learn to live in this new connection, this new identity. It's really foundational to us as followers of Jesus. Another way is to visualize God living in us through this incredible Greek word that shows up just two times in the Bible. It's called, it's, I'll do my best to say it, Papalin Genesia. You can kind of hear the word Genesis in it. it. It means rebirth. It comes actually from the Stoic philosophers of that day that believed the world was getting worse and worse and it would become so broken, so corrupted that there would be a great purging and a fire so fierce it would cleanse and purify everything so the universe could start over again, fresh and new. Jesus actually uses a word in kind of a startling way in Matthew 19, 28. He says, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on the throne at the Peleogenesia, the renewal of all things will happen when Jesus sits on the throne. Everything, the entire world, the cosmos, everything will be purged and become new and reborn. That word shows up one more time in Paul's writings in Titus 3.5. He, Jesus, saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. So here Paul is talking about personal salvation and telling us that Jesus, that Jesus didn't save us just because we, were, because we were righteous of the things we did, but through the rebirth and renewal of the Holy Spirit. 
The rebirth, this renewal, is the same, thing, same word, paleogenesia, referring to a global cosmic rebirth. Paul is saying the minute you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit comes into your life. The power of the future comes into your life and begins to work now. So when someone says, because God's grace is all we need, why change? Why not keep sinning? His grace is covered good enough. Paul is saying, you, just, you don't have the slightest idea of what actually has happened to you. This grace isn't about a measly get-out-of-jail-free card or a hall pass. When you come to Christ, you get something so much more than superficial tinkering. This is a cosmic rebirth that God has done and is doing in you. Therefore, because of this rebirth, if we have chosen to follow Jesus, our lives will show evidence of God's power in our lives, and there will be change happening. Another way to see what Paul is saying would be, think about this, it's kind of silly, but if my little car's battery is dead and you have a big Ford truck, before you jump it, I maybe decide to tell you, well, I just want to see if your Ford's battery has enough power, so I'm going to take the the, the battery cable clips, and I'm going to say, stick out your tongue, and I'm going to stick the positive on one side of your tongue and the negative on the other side of the tongue. Pleasant thing, right? If afterward, after me doing that, you can still stand up and talk, and you're still alive, and you can say, well, it's giving out some power. The reality is, no, it's not really giving out enough power. It's not the kind of power we need, right? When we encounter something as powerful as the resurrection power of God that can change the cosmos, there will be effects seen in our lives. See, one of the problems with our more traditional American approach to discipleship is more of an educational model. Christianity can end up in that model where we are educated, where we learn all the right things about God, but that is not the same as knowing and following this powerful Jesus. The biblical model of discipleship is something far more than head knowledge. It includes that, but it is far more than head knowledge. This is what Paul is wanting for us to get deep into our souls through chapter 6. Paul goes on telling us our old self has been killed so that we are free from sin to be this new self. Verse 6, for we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. So again, Paul is saying, for anyone who has chosen to follow God, sin remains, but it no longer has the strength, no longer controls your personality or your life. You can still disobey God, but sinning goes against your identity. It goes against who you really are now. So the next verse says, Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. This word count is sometimes also translated reckon yourself dead to sin but alive to Jesus. This is a, a truth we're trying to more fully embrace and receive. This is kind of the core of our Christian journey. It's like, it's like having a trust fund in your name but unless you actually use it, your finances don't change. We must 
count ourselves dead to sin. We have to act on this incredible privilege because we won't automatically realize the new life God has given us unless we actually receive it and step into it. We need to embrace our new identity. Verse 12, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself as, to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. So maybe one question out of what I just read. What does letting sin reign look like? Well, maybe it looks like just a tolerance for sin, right? For someone who has chosen to follow God, maybe they think no sin's no big deal, I'm forgiven, no grieving, no disappointment. Or it could look like we're just not making progress in our spiritual growth. Now, there are certain sins that are a struggle, maybe even for a lifetime we'll be facing them. But we don't just give up and say, who cares, I'll never change. See, growth Change is a natural outcome of being in union with God because you, he, you have everything in him that you need. God has broken the power of sin over you. It's not always easy. But the key Paul is trying to help us see is, in this chapter, is learn to focus less on what we should not do and focus more on our identity, who we are in Christ, our old self is gone. We live life, we make decisions going forward through this new identity. Not letting sin reign in our life isn't so much really about having willpower as it is about understanding our position, our relationship now with God. Not being conscious of who you really are is a key problem for all of us. I am redeemed. I am a cherished child of God. I don't belong to death. Sin doesn't control me. This is not who I am. Do you say those things to yourself? This is not some kind of mental trick or power of positive thinking. For those old enough, it's, it's not like SNL Stuart Smalley looking in a mirror saying, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. This new identity is so vital for your spiritual transformation. But it will be challenged continually. Remember the way Satan began tempting Jesus in the wilderness? He said, if you really are the Son of God. Now God had just declared over Jesus, you are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And the first thing Satan goes after is weakening Jesus' identity in the Father, trying to weaken Jesus at the very core of who he is, how he sees himself. So before any temptations toward material things or power or pride, Satan starts with Jesus' identity. Are you really the beloved son of God? And this is how he begins the temptation with every single one of us. Satan will bring up your past sins, things you've done, and say, you really think you're a beloved son or daughter of God? Remember that mistake? Look at your life. Look at how little progress you've made. You need to get your act together. You need to try harder. You need to prove you're really worth God loving you. See, Satan wants to make you look 
at what you can do and what you haven't been able to do instead of knowing what God has done and can do and is doing in and through you. You are fully righteous in God's sight. You are dead to sin. You have the power of the resurrection life inside of you. When you become more aware of that truth of who you are, more power of God is released within you. Paul explains this in verse 14. He says, For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law but under grace. It's a question. What will motivate us to have self-control now that we are not under law? We don't have to be afraid God will reject us if we don't do these commandments, right? Paul responds by asking the same question he began the chapter with, yet with a twist. He says, what then shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Again, he's, he's clear, no. Why? Because being saved doesn't mean you are free from having a master. He goes on and explains this in verse next verse. He says, don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one to whom you obey? whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. Now, this is a difficult analogy. Most of us immediately think about American and and colonial history and the sinful, ungodly enslavement of people. And that's why many, many Christians like Wilberforce and many Christians in America fought slavery so hard. The kind of slavery, though, Paul is talking about is different than that. It's not kidnapping and forced labor of certain ethnic groups or people groups. It was indentured servanthood that he was referring to. So in that day, if you were in debt up to your eyeballs to somebody and you weren't able to pay it off, it was not uncommon to sell yourself to a particular person for five years or however long it took you to pay that off as fast as possible. You offered yourself into slavery In some instances, you offered yourself into, it was almost like signing a lifelong contract with a corporation saying, I'm going to retire with you, right? It wasn't so much slavery as we sometimes think about it all the time. There was that available too back then, but it wasn't that, what, what Paul is talking about. Your slave master, in that instance, has control of your life. So this wasn't a surprising concept to the listeners, but what he says after that does shock them. Paul is saying there are only two groups of people in the world. You can either be a spiritual slave to sin or someone who unconditionally follows God, willingly making him your master. Life is, in this regard, is either or. There is no third category. There's nothing in the middle. Why? I think we get to see it in our own lives in a practical way because everyone is a slave to something or someone. Everyone lives for something. We all have our ways of how we get a sense of significance and security. Maybe it's your career, your family, or power, or approval, or or romance. But basically, what it is that makes your life feel like is meaningful, like you are worthwhile, that is your master. Many of us don't realize how we are letting a desire or need control us. Not recognizing that things are actually our spiritual master. It actually pulls again back into our broader definition of sin. Sin includes behaviors like stealing, lying, watching porn, being prideful, gossiping, etc. But these are symptoms of the biggest sin of all, 
The sin that underlies all of our behaviors is that sin of refusing to let God be God in our lives on his terms. Now, I want to press in here as Paul continues, verse 16. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey? Now, I think we all probably think most of our life, I'm not controlled by anyone. I'm no one's slave. Paul would say, that's kind of naive thinking. You haven't thought it through. Every choice you make, you do because you think this will lead me to happiness. This will make me feel worthwhile. This will be, make me feel loved. The point is, everyone worships something. To worship something is to attach ultimate value to it. You see this thing has potential to make you feel happy, and without it, life is not worth living. And whatever that is, it controls what you do because you will do whatever you need to do to get it or keep it. This is why Paul uses a word like offering your bodies like you would to a, a, a sacrifice in worship. You become a slave to it. Christian counselor David Paulison identifies four basic categories of things we worship and we can become enslaved over. Idols of power is one of them. We see this in those people who love influence or recognition. We, we seek things through money or gaining status. If enslaved to power, we can be domineering, vengeful, self-promoting, harsh, can even be abusive. Another idol we tend to get, be controlled by is the idol of control. We want everything to follow our plan. We don't like uncertainty. Things have to happen on our timetable because we know what's best for our future and the future of others. If things don't go according to plan, we become impatient, irritable, and often angry, and sometimes often angry at God. If enslaved to control, we'll worry all the time. We'll lose our temper a lot. We will work extra hard. We will tend to sometimes, sometimes people will feel like they're being manipulated by us because we need to control. We have idols of approval we struggle with. We, we need to be accepted and are not happy unless others are happy with us and admire us, which leads to being devastated in the face of feedback and criticism. We have a thin skin when it comes to that stuff. We continually need to be affirmed. To not be wanted is devastating. And we may find ourselves caving in and not doing the right thing out of fear of disapproval of others. If enslaved to approval, your life will be plagued by self-pity and envy, hurt feelings, feelings of inadequacy. The idol of pleasure. This is about longing for physical things to make us feel good about life, be it a big house or luxurious vacations or good food or sexual pleasure. If one's enslaved to pleasures, you won't be able to say no to food or sex or porn or you can get addicted to any one of these things or other things. So which of these four is the one that you most fall to? Power, control, approval, pleasure? See, there's nothing wrong with any of these desires in one sense. However, if they become the central thing in your life, they become the ultimate focus in your life, something you feel you have to have, it becomes enslaving. Because a good thing becomes a bad thing when we worship that thing as an ultimate thing. This is what Paul 
was referring to in verse 12 when he said, therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. This word desires is a really interesting word. It's epithumeo. Thumeo means desires. When you add the epi, it means on top of or above. It, it refers to desire that becomes so large it controls you. It is over desire, controlling desire, driving you way out of proportion. See, we see this when our desire for money starts to land on top of all the other desires. And you don't see how you can be happy without a certain level of money. You are, you, you are not okay living a second-class life, you might be thinking. Or maybe you want recognition and your boss or family or friends don't seem to recognize or validate you in the way you want. They don't affirm you enough and you become resentful. Tim Keller tells of three surefire tests to show you what is spiritually mastering you right now. And he adds the epi to this as a reminder from Paul that it becomes an ultimate desire, an out-of-proportion desire. So he talks about epi-anger. When you When something blocks you from getting something good, you get upset. That's normal. That's fine, right? But if something blocks you from getting an ultimate thing, you become epi-angry. You snap. You rage. You blow up. You say things. You don't know why you did it. This is not who you want to be and not what you think you are. Or epi-worry. If something good in your life is threatened, you get worried. Now, if I found out my kids were in danger, I'd be worried. That's natural, right? But if something ultimate in your life is threatened, not that my kids aren't ultimate. They shouldn't be ultimate. They're important. Sidetrack. But if something ultimate in your life is threatened, you are paralyzed. Your fear has become epi-fear. You are so anxious that you cannot think right. Epi-sadness. If you lose something good in your life, you grieve. It's terrible. Again, that's normal. But if you lose something ultimate, you despair. You fall apart. You feel like life is not worth living. You may want to die, not feeling like there's any meaning in life. Anybody been there before? Don't raise your hands. These three emotions point to places where something has displaced God as the master of your heart. So what ends up provoking these three emotions in you? What makes you the most angry? What makes you the most worried? What makes you the most sad? For me, with Empty Nest, I've gotten more directly involved in the management of my retirement investments, doing a lot more research. And recently, God said to me, the desire for growth and wealth and retirement was out of order. I felt like God said to me, you need to get off of Wall Street and back on my street. This good, wise desire was beginning to get out of order. And I had to pray and I had to repent of that and just get my heart right back in there. Stop putting so much hope in that and get my hope back in God. If you're a workaholic, you overwork and you're overwhelmed. You've offered yourself to the God of money or status or achievement, whatever it is that drives you to do that. If you're in a relationship and everybody knows it's a bad relationship and you can't get it up, you probably made an idol out of it. It's got you controlled. Every master other than God will lead you to death. That's what Paul said in Romans 3.23, for the wages of sin is death. Choosing to serve something other than God will lead to death. Trying to fill our longings with something or someone will never fill that hole within. It will never lead to satisfaction. If you are dissatisfied, maybe some of this holds true for you in life right now. 
It's kind of like greyhound racing. Anybody ever seen that? To get the dogs to race harder and faster, they have a mechanical lure. They have a mechanical bunny that you know, they ch the dogs chase around the track, right? They see the bunny and they tear off after it. It's always just out of their reach. But every time, they're going to run after it. Can you imagine what it would be like for them if they really actually caught it and got that mechanical bunny full of, uh, on the out, full of fluff on the outside and metal on the inside? Incredibly disappointing. It's not a tasty bunny chop. It's so not satisfying. See, that's what Paul is describing here. When we get the new house or the new marriage or the new job after the newness wears off, it will never bring deep satisfaction on its own. Paul says it this way, What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. This keeps leading you to death, so why do you keep going back to it? But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life, in this life and in the one to come, life in abundance. Now let's give a cheer out, because after a long night of fireworks and staying up late, we've made it through the entire chapter 6 with all of its challenging points, so way to go, way to not fall asleep. I didn't hear anybody snoring. Great job. See, God gives you what your soul really is looking for. And you don't have to work to obtain this life. You receive it as a gift. So how do we walk this out? Well, first, freedom is an awareness of where I am attached. Are you inordinately attached to certain things, to money, safety, approval? Am I living life making choices by default? Uh, I just take a job because it makes money and that kind of security is my default. Notice the attachments in your life. Because the reality is freedom is not a lack of attachments. It is whether you are attached to the one who truly brings out the best in you and the best in life. And second, point of application. Live in your new identity in Christ. And we're going to talk a lot more about this in two weeks. See, when you have chosen Christ, your former self is gone and you're not the same person. You've been through a cosmic rebirth. So a picture that may help us with this is there's a famous preacher, David Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, from the 1900s. He used to share a story that kind of went like this. He says, imagine a country where one group of people is enslaved by another group of people for hundreds of years. When a member of the enslaved group would be out on the street and a member of the oppressing group could order that slave to do anything, and if they didn't obey, the oppressing group could beat them or kill them. But then imagine, he says, a good king comes to power. He decrees emancipation for all slaves, and he sets up his soldiers and police in every town and puts judges in place so that they who were previously enslaved will be ensured to be free. And then he asks this question. Do you think making these changes is all it takes for the members of the enslaved group who have been enslaved all of their life to think and act differently? Will they automatically no longer tremble when they meet a member of the oppressing group? If the oppressing group still orders them to do something, what will they feel and do? Will they stand up and not do it? Will they do it out of fear and out of habit? 
Or will they lash out in anger and violence if they do it out of fear and habit? Or if they lash out in violence, that neither of those are freedom. The truth is the members of the oppression group don't have the power anymore. If the previously enslaved member stands up, the oppressor can't do anything. All the judges, police, and soldiers will back them. But often, we continue in our lives to act like slaves to sin, even though our status has changed. Reality has changed. We are truly free, but we don't grasp it. Because we haven't fully realized that we remain as slaves of sin. It's the reason we do wrong. It's the reason we cannot change. It's the reason we are still wrapped up and absorbed in our epi fears, our epi anger, and our epi discouragement. It's why we so often can't break our habits, the bad habits. We've got a real status change, it's not just symbolic. You really are a new creation in God. His Holy Spirit really does come to you and reside in you. And yet you don't know who you are. And that's why it takes a while for us to change. Letting this truth sink into every part of our being. So I want to encourage you to take the time today, this week, to let the truth of your new identity be more embedded in your heart and mind and be reflected in your actions as a result. Would you stand with me as we pray? Holy Spirit, I just pray that you would come to each and every one of us, that you would interrupt our thoughts when we get caught in all these fears, that you would help us to recognize these epi-fears and epi-thoughts in our, our hearts that are are placing ultimate value on something other than you. And Lord, would you just let us learn to rest in our identity as fully adopted sons and daughters of the King of Kings of the universe, full heirs along with Jesus of all you are. Lord, that that would become more and more the first place we go in our thoughts. And that you, Lord, would bring freedom from all the things that bring harm and destruction to our lives. And that you would lead us into experiencing every single day more and more of the blessing and the goodness you want to bring in our lives and through our lives. All right, stand today and just recognize it. It starts with recognizing your Holy Spirit in us. So I pray for every single person here, everybody listening online, that your spirit would come and you would rest on us that we would know your presence and your love with us in this moment. And Lord, as we worship you now with our voices, come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you encountered the love of Jesus in this message. If you'd like to be a part of the ministry God is doing through Quest, whether in person or online, Go to questvineyard.org for more information. If you want to worship God by supporting Quest financially, go to questvineyard.org give. May God bless you this week as you partner with God to change the world one friendship at a time.